ninepence. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Here. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Well, when's your next run? Thursday. You think I'll go for a walk? You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look. Isn't there something you can do? I feel happy. I feel happy. Oh, thanks very much. Touch off. See you on Thursday. Hello, everybody. It's time once again for your favorite podcast, Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Anthony, Destroyer of Cubes, Maddox. I, I feel like you've just given me this destructive bent in nicknames the last couple episodes. I and, have? Uh, yeah, you know, I was, I was, I got to be Oppenheimer a little bit. Uh, I don't keep track of these okay, things, man, great. so I don't, I don't know You don't have a spreadsheet, you're just going to start doing the same ones over and over? Mm, uh, that's possible, but if I can't remember doing them, then surely no one else is going to remember either. I hope I can follow through on this and, and actually destroy my cube. Which cube are you destroying, Anthony? The mono black cube. I, sh- I meant to just unsleeve a couple cards just to feel like, but I want to I take one picture of it before I do so. Lay the whole thing out? Lay the whole thing out, yeah. Are you going to put it in a specific order to lay the whole thing out? Great question. You know, I haven't gone that far. I just want to I just want to have, like, a picture, throw on the Cube Cobra list, just be like, hey, this cube isn't around anymore, but uh, the list lives on. Oh, yeah, on. you can take a picture and put it up in the description and then mm-hmm. put, like, yeah. a it was real. gravestone emoji in there. <laughs> a real gravestone. Go borrow a gravestone from a neighbor that still has their Halloween decorations up. Put, you know, years, year boring, year died. Yep. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a moment for the podcast, too, not to talk about the show on the show, but... Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I, I do you remember when we talked about this mono black cube? I do. do you, it was very... It was episode number two, I think, right? I was going to say it was in the first five. I didn't it was, know Yeah, it was so I think it's only two. appropriate that we're bracketing it here and talking about it uh, at the end of the podcast. The podcast is over. <laughs> this is how everyone finds <laughs> out. No, the podcast is not over, but it's, uh, you know, we've been around long enough to outlive a cube, which is... That's a milestone of it's some sort. Something. Something. I'll take a guess. Whatever. Uh, on this episode of Lucky Paper Reader, we're going to talk about the death of Anthony's Mono Black Cube, as well as maybe some other things that come up. A little potpourri episode, just as a treat. Before we do that, though, we are going to do a pack one, pick one from a listener-submitted cube. And this week, Anthony, it's a very, very special listener-submitted cube. Yeah, we usually do this a little semi-randomly, but I'm going to put my thumb on the scales here and just give... I'm going to stop giving shout-outs. I'm just going to say thank you to Donald K. Magic, who Donald was K. Magic. one of the people that contributed the most to annotating our previous episodes, which we're just so thankful for. You know, a, a couple people that really stepped up and helped us out a lot. So if you go back and listen to those old episodes now, you can see all the, the cards mentioned uh, on that page and the timestamps, which, you know, we were just we just hadn't really uh, figured out how to make a podcast at the beginning, uh, or at least you say that, a but magic podcast. No podcasts do that. We are unique in doing that. So it's not like we hadn't True. figured yeah. out how to make a podcast. We just have taken the podcast from just like every other podcast to elevate it above since then. And we got a chance to to meet Donald K. Magic. I got to play. I actually oh, didn't. Yes. Okay, I think well. I, you got to meet Donald K. Magic. We actually played uh, the Daniels All Gold, All That Glitters Cube together. Got to play some cool matches. Well, I'm glad you got to meet Donald. I didn't get to because you pointed him out to me while I was in the middle of a draft. You were like, that guy over there, that's, <laughs> that's the back of Donald K. Magic. And then I like finished my draft and then I was like, where'd he go? And you looked around and it was like, he's gone. And that he's was also... Gone. 
Saturday. Maybe I, we didn't see him on Sunday. I don't know. Donald, I'm sorry I didn't get to meet you, time, uh, time. but you get to meet Anthony. He's the more likable one of us anyway, so just pretend that uh, I was equally as likable. But he also just submitted uh, this cube of his, and I think it's a super cool cube, independent of the fact that we want to just say thank you and so uh, elevate this cube a little bit. I also just think it's a very cool cube. Yeah, and you know, just to say thank you one more time, I do get messages all the time from people that are quote-unquote binging the back catalog. So I know that those old episodes still get a lot of attention even though they are dated. And the cards mention page does get used because we, if we miss a card, we hear about it the same day pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and we're, we're, we do that intentionally just to test the listeners, that's right? That's <laughs> the green M&M in the cards mentioned page just to make sure you read the entire rider. What's the special cube we're doing today from Donald So this cube, uh, the, the big thing is every single creature in the cube has uh, all creature types in all zones. So it's kind of like a Which is a modified cube. rule. It's not that literally every single card in the cube is right, a Right, exactly. So I mean, similar to the Turbo Cube where we have like an emblem that says it changes something fundamental about the game. We're doing something similar here. Uh, we also have a couple other special rules. Every drafter has access to up to three copies of Mech hang- Hanger during the deck construction. And just to to clarify that, that sort of tribal thing, it works on all creatures. It doesn't affect other tribal spells that aren't necessarily creatures. So Mech Hanger can tap for any color of mana, but just for my creature spells. Just for your creatures. Or, I mean, there could be changeling spells in the cube, like Nameless Inversion, Crib Swap, those kinds of spells, which do have every type. It doesn't say a pilot creature spell. It says a That's pilot true. spell. So yeah. uh, that would also work, presumably. Okay. Okay. I, I think this is a really cool stipulation for a cube. I, uh, I've dabbled myself in tribal cubes, and I got around the sort of restrictions of trying to build a cube with tribal themes that wasn't totally narrow and on rails by just including... Tons of changelings, breaking singleton for the better changeling cards and just including multiples of them. But this is an even more powerful and cool way to, I think, get around that limitation and play with cards that are otherwise, I think, difficult to enjoy in a drafted environment. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like we've seen plenty of designs of tribal cubes that are really leading into tribal in in the sense that they just have a lot of cards that are tribal payoffs. And that kind of design sort of lends itself to being a number of little isolated sets of synergies. So it's like, here's all the knights, here's all the goblins, all the wizards. They work well together, and when you're drafting, you're trying to seek out getting, like, finding your lane and figuring out how to optimize getting uh, the the most of those particular type of card. You know, just like that resource, whatever that game piece is, and then balancing that with other types of effects you need. In this, that isn't really a mechanic. It's not trying to figure out what tribe is open because every card is every tribe. So it's really just a way to say all of these creatures kind of are going to work differently and interact with all of your other creatures another way, which is in a way almost like anti-tribal, but it's just cool to see how these cards change. Yeah, and I think it makes for some very powerful cards. Oh, yeah. Especially with the ones with more narrow tribes. I mean, I think we're maybe familiar with some of the more powerful payoffs for goblins or elves or wizards, but... For narrower tribes, sometimes they have even more powerful payoffs because it's even it's, harder to right, build a deck around the restriction the of that exactly. the whole sort of system doesn't support them in the same way. Right, and all and there's not enough cards that they're all good. You can play all good wizards in your wizards tribal deck, but can you play all you good oozes can. in your ooze tribal deck? Probably not. You're going to run out of good oozes before you run out of card slots. So I'm excited to dive into this pack. I'll read it. Anthony will tell us what the best pick is with his big brain, and then uh, we'll hear from Donald about maybe what the correct pick actually was later. The pack is Watery Grave, Worthy Knight, Headless Rider, Scarblade Elite, Empty the Warrens, Hallowed Fountain, Watery Grave Number 2, Edgewalker, Vidalcan Aether Mage, Goblin Grenade, Watery Grave Number 3, Kinsbale Border Guard, Mere Galvanizer, Mistblade Shinobi, and Stomping Ground. That's a lot of Watery Graves. 
I would assume this is all of the watery graves in the cube, which is just, you know, weird luck that we happen to get all of them in one pack. Uh, so there's actually five of each shock land. Okay, so it's there, not there anywhere are... <laughs> near all of them. Interesting. So I'm looking, yeah, looking at the mana base now, there actually are no fetch lands. It's just a five right. shock land fixing mana base, which is very interesting. And I think it's going to make for some fast games. Yeah. I mean, shuffling is fun to be honest sometimes but shuffling it's, it's also a, nice to have games where you don't have to shuffle a lot yeah shuffling is definitely something that rubs people different ways yeah that's always one of the things that i'm looking at first in the pack is what is kind of the mana base in the environment and how highly should i value these lands especially just seeing three water graves that's maybe conditioning me a little bit where i'm thinking eh, maybe that's not quite as important and there are a bunch of lands so i don't think i'm starting with a land here i love to see a pack with a lot of lands though i do love to see that Looking at the creatures, a couple things stand out to me. Worthy Knight just says, whenever you cast a creature spell, make a 1-1 human creature token. That seems extremely powerful. Edgewalker gives you a discount on all of your creatures, regardless of type, but only on but the funky black discount. and white mana pips yeah, in a- that creature. We have the Dalkin Aether Mage, a classic that I enjoy in my, my wizard tribal deck, uh, wizard tribal commander deck, I should say. It has wizard cycling, so it's kind of just like a three-mana tutor for any creature in your deck. That seems pretty relevant. And then Mer Galvanizer also stands out. Three mana for a 2-2. Other mirror you control get plus one, plus one, so that's going to be all of your creatures. And you can also pay one and tap it to untap each other creature you control in this context, which are two very potent abilities. I think between all of those, the Dalkin Aether Mage is tempting, but I'm not sure that three mana added to the best creature in my deck is going to be worth it in this context. Edgewalker's cool, but that condition is a little bit narrow, especially, you know, I'd be very happy to have this if I'm in black-white, and especially have a lot of gold black-white creatures, but I think that it's going to be a little hard to make that work. I think I'm pretty clearly on Worthy Knight here, just because it's going to pay you off for every creature you have it has a pretty good base rate just as a two mana two two and really critically it makes a bunch more creature tokens and there are a lot of things that just care about creatures so i think having more tokens is going to be really really paid off in this context worthy night was the first thing that jumped out at me i don't think edgewalker is in contention here the discount is really specific and narrow very specific yeah and to me, that's like a, a payoff if you already a black-white, like you said. I would never first pick that, I don't think. I think Vidalkin Aether Mage is better than you're giving it credit for, because you can also just cast it as a two-mana instant speed mana war, because it that's does true. come into play and return target sliver to its owner's oh, hand. I forgot about that text. And, uh, I mean, that every, is one of the and challenges. And everything is slivers, so, hmm. and it's got flash, so... I think Aether okay. Mage is actually specifically, a pretty I, good card. I play with this card a fair amount because I do have it in my wizard commander You literally deck, never do. And I've, you never, I've cast never returned a sliver. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, aha, anybody have a sliver? Very fun joke. <laughs> the other card I you didn't mention is Headless Rider, which I think is potentially very appealing. It's three mana for a 3-1, and whenever Headless Rider or another non-token zombie dies, you make a 2-2 black zombie token. I don't know how high to rate that here. I think its power level is going to hinge on whether or not there is some sort of deck that can trigger that as part of its proactive plan. Right. I think if you're only expecting creatures to die in combat and that's your only way you're going to get tokens, then this card is not a super high pick. But as soon as you have any way to sacrifice a thing, recur anything, start any kind of even slower clunky loop, that's going to generate a ton of value. It's funny. My first thought was Worthy Knight is the best card in the pack for all the reasons you mentioned. And then I was like, is this better than Young Pyromancer? Like Young Pyromancer is a two mana two one that makes one ones when you cast into sorcery spells. And... I think maybe this environment is amped up enough that creature spells are harder to chain together than it's in sorcery spells historically, because usually they're more expensive and they don't cantrip in a lot of environments. So I actually don't know how important that is. Mere Galvanizer, I think, is an effect that I don't really know how to rate. I mean, three mana for a 2-2 Lord for all your creatures is well above rate for anything we get in any color, pretty much. 
And that untap every other creature you control for one and tapping it, I think could potentially be abusable, and it has the benefit of being colorless. So I'm going to somewhat speculatively take this Mere Galvanizer, and I think after that, I would honestly probably take Aether Mage, then Worthy Knight. I think those are my top three in order. Interesting. I think that I'm a little bit unsure of how Vidalcan Aether Mage is going to play out, because I do see a lot of things that have Enter the Battlefield triggers and things like that, which makes it a little bit worse. Uh, and overall, just the, the curve, the mana the mana cost of these creatures is pretty low. Anthony, you I can think... return your own creatures to your hand, too. This is just the world's greatest oh, white main lion oh in uh, Vidalcan Aether Mage. That's really tempting. Um, all right, I would still start on Worthy Knight, because that's kind of how I expect things to go here, but I would not be surprised if one of those other choices is the right choice. It's a cool cube. I'd love to play it and see exactly how these cards end up playing out, and I would not be surprised to hear from Donald or a player in his playgroup that has played this quite a bit that a card we didn't even mention is perhaps the highest pick. Is there a storm deck here? Should we just be on Empty the Warrens? I don't know. Do we just want a lot of watery graves? I don't think it's just the kind of environment where I'm looking to play like more than three colors, or ideally two in a splash. I agree, yeah. I, I am glad to see from looking at this pack and the list that I think I'll be able to draft a very low to the ground efficient mana curve kind of deck, which is what I like to do. And the cheaper my mana curve is, the, the less I want to be splashing more colors. Well, Donald, thank you for sending in your cube. And again, thank you so much for annotating those past episodes. It, uh, it really does help a lot. And not just with all the people that are going back and listening to the, to the back catalog, but also just for me, who is compulsive, and uh, we actually have a couple little like cool visualization things we're working on maybe for the site that would be a little bit of a bummer if there were holes missing, and uh, now there's not going to be any holes in it. Thanks to you, Donald. So you didn't take us up on that drink and or dinner, which we did promise you at KubeCon, and I'm serious about well, that. Well, that's, so. that's maybe a little on, on us as well. We were not as... Uh, we weren't. We didn't go out in the town at all. We were pretty much... You drafting. Went out, you went out to dinner once. We went out to dinner, but just with, <laughs> with two of two of our. The rest of us were drafting yeah, still. Yeah. That offer still stands for next year's KubeCon. So, I mean, for all I know, maybe Donald doesn't want to have dinner with us. That's, that's, that's entirely reasonable. If you want to have your cube on Lucky Paper Radio, uh, you can't go back and annotate episodes because Donald already did them all. So you can't possibly curry favor the way Donald has. But you can participate in our semi-random algorithmic lottery by submitting your cube online on our special page designed for just that purpose. Very fitting, Anthony, that we drafted the Mono Black Cube the day after Halloween and are going to put it in the ground this week. Yeah, you know, I think I've been saying that I'm going to take this cube apart for probably uh, a year and a half. I don't know how long have I even had this cube. I mean, not more than like two years, basically. Yeah, so pretty much, yeah, immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, there's just enough cards that are spread out between other projects that I have little notes like, go make sure you find your recurring nightmare and put it back in this in this particular box if you want to draft it. And it was the spooky season and we had our regular Tuesday night draft coming out and I thought, let's do this one more time and then I'll finally take this apart. Final send off before you put, Final the, send -off. put the cube on a ship, push it out to sea, set the ship on fire. I think this is relevant to talk about, though. Like, we talk a lot about building cubes, but I think with any kind of hobby, there is a life cycle to things. And as much as we like to make stuff, it also is good to reflect on when you should take stuff apart. Uh, so I think that thinking about that whole life cycle a little bit makes sense. And I also think it's it's worth having just a little bit of a conversation about this particular cube, because it was a little bit of an experiment. It sort of had a thesis to it. And talk about if we thought that was a success or not. I wonder how many people have actually taken apart a cube. I haven't. Ever. You haven't? No. I've have only, I? I've, only, I've only got the two cubes in paper. I don't think you've taken apart one either until now. I've taken apart some battle boxes. Sure. I've done that as well. Okay. 
But I mean, a cube is, it's a lot. Like you go and you get all the sleeves, you find a box for it, you get all the basic lands all sleeved up. I feel like there's a lot of sunk cost fallacy. I invested all this into this cube. You know, why should I take it apart? And, you know, the answer is that I think a lot of times your interests do move on. And uh, if, instead of, you know, having this thing sit in a closet forever until you draft it once every two or three years, you could use the cards for something else. And so even though it's a lot of work, I think it would be better for me and probably a lot of people that are also cube designers that are listening to get in the habit of actually cycling through things more and being more willing to kill their darlings. Yeah, just, I mean, in the most, like, fundamental logistical sense, there's a lot of great reasons to take stuff apart because you have resources tied up in that. It's a bunch of cards, potentially, that, you know, if you're making it with real cards, if you're not proxying, that's a bunch of cards that potentially cost a lot of money that you could be getting more use out of. It's a lot of sleeves. It's a box. It's just space in your house and in your life to think about this is you know mind. what i'm in your mind uh so it does just make sense to to clean house every once in a while do a little fall cleaning i think the other thing that i, I really want to reflect on is that it makes sense to take things apart because it's really valuable to just iterate on things in a big way and not just think and just let yourself actually iterate and do things many times. I feel like I think about this a lot with ceramics. I know you did some ceramics as well. If you think, uh, I don't know why this particular example really sticks out to me, but there's a multiple ways you could approach trying to make a perfect thing. Uh, you could try and just spend a lot of time building the one perfect thing and really focusing on the details and fiddling with it. Or you could just start making things and just make the same thing 10 times. And at the end of the day, the one that you made on the 10th iteration that you only spent a 10th of the time on might end up just being the best one, even though you spent so much less time on. And I feel like for some reason, just doing ceramics is a thing where I really viscerally feel that experience where the more effort you put into something, there are diminishing margins. You're kind of approaching a local maximum and maybe you're even just getting too focused on it and you end up uh, sort of in the weeds in the weeds and breaking it and damaging things. So I just see so much value in actually taking the time to instead just iterate and repeat. And I think you can learn so much more from that. Uh, so for me, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, especially coming off of KubeCon, like what do I want to be building in this next year as far as cubes? How do I want to be approaching this hobby? And I think that doing more iteration and being a little bit less precious about it is kind of where my head's at. This is one of those situations where I'm going to begrudge my poor memory because that ceramics pot-making anecdote is resonant with me as well. And I looked up the source for it, and it was not easy to find, but I did find the original source at some point. But as I said here today, I can't remember what it was. Is this something you also... We, we didn't talk about that before this episode. Is this something we've talked about in the past? We've definitely did talked we about hear about it from the same we honestly source? may have talked about it on the show, I think. It's possible. But yeah, the original anecdote, I believe, is that, you know, it was a instructor that supposedly had a class of students and gave half the class the assignment of you're only being graded on how many pots you make this semester. That is the only metric you're graded on. So make as many pots as possible. Gave the other half of the class the instruction that they were only being graded on their best pot. So spend your entire semester making the best pot you can. And the punchline is that the students that made the most pots also made the best pots because they spent their time making way more pots and getting better at it. I think this like local maxima thing is very real. And there's a lot of people that I think for a lot of the practical reasons we talked about have one cube, right? And yeah. that's totally reasonable, of course, to have one cube. But I do think if you're trying to grow as a designer, then working in other environments can really help change how you think about the game. Uh, you know, I, I think I said in the beginning of my article on the Degenerate Microcube that it changed how I think about the game. And it really did. Like, I mean, working on that environment and figuring out what made it tick and what was good and what wasn't good in a totally different kind of magic it's not like that didn't influence cards I put in my regular cube or other projects I'm working on. Like it's all, it's all cumulative, right? And that's one of the things I love about magic is that because we are working in this universal system where all the cards 
interact in similar ways, while we always say context matters, there is also some underlying root transportable knowledge, I think, and transportable understanding of the game that is only broadened by doing more interesting, weird, extreme experiments. And Absolutely, as we said before, yeah. like my, my goal is to understand the game, right? And I think that's, uh, we still we stole that from Drew, I'll keep repeating it, but like, that's what I think this show is about. And Cube is the best way to understand the game, I think, rather than any other format. And that's just why we love it so much. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I'm thinking more of this as just not a focusing on the death of one project, but on the looking at this more holistically and sort of generating some momentum for myself, you know? I mean, even just like literally in the act of starting to unsleeve and like sort and look at a bunch of cards, that's probably going to give me some ideas for whatever the next project is going to be. So what do you think about this cube in particular? Uh, I sort of started with the thesis of can magic be fun without the color pie? Like if we just take out color, everybody can play technically all the cards. We don't have that resource tension. Is magic still going to be fun? And the way that I sort of chose to test that is just by focusing on a single color because, you know, when... Which is effectively no color, yeah. Exactly, yeah. I mean, you could do that a couple different ways. You could just say, like with these custom rules, just say everyone has an emblem that you can cast whatever, but I think that would still be really difficult to focus on, so I think this... It would be really hard to actually ignore color impacts. We're so conditioned to, like, thinking about picks that go with our other picks that I think resetting your brain to draft a five-color cube without any color restrictions would be a big hurdle. So I think the methodology made sense there, uh, and I definitely tried to sort of think about, anticipate what the problems would be, and how do we still create an interesting draft environment. Uh, I'm curious what your experience has been with the, the times we've drafted this cube. Do you think that the color pie is necessary for magic, I guess, is, is sort of the thesis. I think I've only drafted this cube three, maybe four times. Okay. And I, I mean, how many times have you drafted it? Not Six, a ton seven, that, yeah. eight, maybe? Which, you know... Just to, to underscore another reason why this is coming apart is it was a fun novelty, but it is taking up a lot of card space, head space, And I'm not sure anybody for... wants to draft it like week over week, right? Absolutely, yeah. uh, It's And that's what I'll say. is It definitely was never my favorite cube. I think the color pie is very important to magic. I do think it's maybe even more important in Constructed, though, where you want to have a variable, lively meta and absent any mechanical restriction that prohibits players from playing all the best cards side by side in the deck, I feel like the meta would be kind of converge on a best deck very quickly and there wouldn't be any justifiable reason to branch out and try and make counterplay to that. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. It's sort of fundamental to Magic being a trading card game. I feel like we take this for granted because we're deep in it, but to people that have just played like you know, poker and gin rummy, whatever the, the card games are, the, the fact that everybody's showing up with their own unique deck, it's kind of a wild concept when you're hearing it for the first time. And the way that you actually preserve that diversity, uh, preserve the fact that people are not all just showing up with the same best deck is through things like the color pie that force that diversity because there is that tension between playing the best cards or playing just a subset of cards that are more consistent or more reliable or work best together. And that, that's the like game design mechanical way that you right. do that when you're assuming your players are seeking to win the game. I right. do think that part of the reason we've seen the color pie change a lot in the past years is that that's not really the guiding stricture of Commander, right? Like Definitely, People yeah. are not optimizing their decks for the most part. They're not showing up with the strict goal to win. And so they will do something just because they like it. And so in that sense, it's really hard to design for that audience with game design mechanics. So the color pie, I do think doesn't really serve as much of a role in Commander as it does in other forms of magic, which is why we see people begging for white to get card draw and, you know, black to get enchantment removal or whatever things they want their decks to be able to do, because I don't think it has the same governing principle it has in other kinds of magic. For sure. But I 
found the drafts of the Mono Black Q to be kind of boring. Uh, I think the draft was suffered a lot more than the gameplay for being colorless. Absolutely. Uh, it definitely felt like I was just kind of taking the best card out of every pack. I did make one attempt at drafting a really aggressive deck, which, you know, you, you did make a very conscious effort to try and weave discrete decks into the otherwise colorless environment. So there still would be reasons why your pick order would change depending on what you'd previously taken. I mean, that's that that's what color does in the most fundamental way in Magic. Like, once you're in a color, those cards that are that color become much higher picks, and cards that are not that color become much lower picks. And so that's like the easiest, dumbest, most blunt way to change the pick order for every player sitting around the table. And you still attempted to do that by having some tribal themes, having some aggressive strategies, having some more combo-y synergy kind of stuff going on. But I still just felt like, and maybe I was doing it wrong. I'd never been particularly successful in this cube. I can't remember all my records, but I don't think I've ever 3 0 it in my three-ish drafts of it. I always just feel like I'm taking the best card of every pack, and I end up with a kind of mid-rangey good stuff deck. And then the games, I think, are definitely very interesting. It's funny how knowing that every opponent is going to be mono-black changes your deck building and changes how you actually play things out because there are certain things black decks can do and certain things black decks can't do. One of the only cards I believe that was quote-unquote banned from this environment was Mimic Vat, not just because Daniel popped his top because he was so mad about no, playing pretty, against Mimic Vat. Pretty much because of that. Well, but also, you know, in this environment, Black can't remove artifacts. Yeah. I mean, I think you do... Did you have Phyrexes? You, know, you intentionally avoided anything that was like color pie breaking because the whole point was right. to sink your teeth into this one chunk of the color pie. So once Mimic Vat was in play, good luck. You were never removing it, so you now you to figure out a way to beat it. And given that aggro, I would say, suffered here. I think the fastest decks never really super shined because they just can't beat Gary and Recurring Nightmare. Yeah, that's just like a combo that you're never going to beat if you're trying to get your opponent's life total to zero. I think that Mimic Vat was like just too hard to interact with. And similarly, it's like valuing creatures differently, knowing that there's going to be a decent amount of removal and like those kinds of things right. definitely change my perceptions and evaluations of cards. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And, and looking at the decks, uh, specifically from last night's draft, there was some significant diversity. You know, uh, I really love seeing Patrick go all in on this really aggressive, all one and two drop. That's the best deck. aggressive deck I've seen in this cube. And it was, ever, it was very I solid. I, I think he went, uh, did pretty well with that. Uh, we had multiple players sort of go into pretty deep vampire themes. I sort of tried to do a zombie theme, but that didn't quite work out for. because I know, was also doing some zombie it's little, payoffs. It's, it's a little hard to make that work. I mean, it is also just really hard to read signals. So I would say overall, I would say, yes, I think this was successful in that it was definitely we still fun. did still see diversity in decks. The, the, the draft choices still mattered, which for you and me, the, the actual experience of the draft itself is almost as important as the game experience. And I think it's true for almost everybody, honestly. A I lot mean, of people, yeah. People just love drafting. I mean, it's, it's one of the most fun parts yeah. of the game. And I've definitely seen people be like, let's just draft and then reveal our decks and decide who we think wins yeah, and then draft sure. again, you know, because that's that's the fun part. Uh, so I would say, yes, to me, this was a success, but this was not the most successful implementation of it. That if somebody was interested in building another monocolored cube, I, I would definitely play it for sure. I would probably play it many times and explore all the different colors and how they played out. But I also see that it's kind of easier just to use this existing mechanic of the color pie to sort of promote that diversity and that complexity within the draft. Yeah, but I, I also totally agree with you that it's not as necessary as in Constructed because there, the draft itself just creates so many more forces for players to play unique decks. Whereas in Constructed, you would just say, I'm picking the best cards. That's it. Uh, if that was the optimal strategy and there was one set of best cards, there just is a bunch of variation randomness from the draft itself well, more that importantly, you like, don't have that experience. More importantly, in a cube, 
you decide what cards people have to play with. And right. so, like, you that is entirely just... up to you. In Constructed, you don't get to choose at all. They just show up with the cards they think are best. And so you could have a 1,000 cards in this theoretical monocolored standard, and everyone just shows up with some variation of four ofs of the top 10 or 12 cards. And the right. rest of those cards don't even matter. They never see play. Here, those cards are literally going to see play. Whatever cards you put in the cube are going to get played eventually. Uh, even the, the bottom tier is eventually going to make someone's list. And so you can essentially force people to avoid just playing the best possible good stuff strategy by just creating a different kind of draft environment. I, I do think that color is honestly like maybe the biggest benefit of color in drafting is it's a really helpful tool for like new players right. that otherwise would struggle to find a cohesive strategy or an open lane in a draft pod. The color is like the most in your face thing. It's like the card is this color. I, it's pack. It's pick four and there's a bunch of good green cards in the pack it's not hard to figure out that green is a color that's open, whereas it's pick four and there's a certain amount of zombie cards in this pack. And this, I happen to know this is a really good zombie payoff. Like it's a much more subtle thing to try and suss out. Right. Which I think we could th frame a couple different ways. I think we could, we could hypothesize that there isn't that much diversity. You just sort of take the best pack and it, the draft isn't that divert or that, um, isn't that nuanced or it could just be that, Actually, there is a lot of nuance if we could give it to the time-traveling supercomputer, but it's just really hard to read those signals. Right. And I don't think the difference between those is super meaningful. If if people are just not exactly, feeling yeah. that, that sort of... If it's too uh, hard to read the signals so yeah. they're not doing it, then right. it might Which as well not be there. Ultimately is what matters. It's sort of the, the player experience. I also agree with you, that, though, that the, the gameplay was actually kind of awesome. I had so many great games with this cube, uh, which kind of makes sense. Like, again, I think that the power of the color pie, it does also sort of lend this different decks are doing different things, and you have sort of different expectations about what different players are doing. But it's also just fun to play mirror matches against the same color. It didn't sort of fundamentally break anything about the experience of the gameplay. No, and I think the fact that these were much closer to, like, strict mirror matches, like... Ultimately, I do think there was actually a lot less deck diversity. I mean, you could point out people that like did a vampire synergy thing versus a zombie yeah. synergy thing. How different are those, though? It's like two tribal synergies with vampire. More vampires fly, I guess, is the best you can like get is actually like, distinguishing those decks. Like, they're just kind of insular creature synergy decks. But but the fact that there was less deck diversity did mean that I think a lot of the matchups were just a lot closer. And so the games did come down to small edges whether you like, you know, got the most value out of your whatever spell or something, like the kinds of gameplay I know a lot of players to really enjoy. And I think it's easier to achieve that kind of gameplay in an environment where there aren't so many variables that you have to account for. And you can just be like, yeah, everyone can play the same cards. So everyone figure out their own strategy and you end up with decks that I think are much closer to each other in power level. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that a lot of the, the the games that I really enjoyed were some of the slower, grindier games that relied on finding, you know, weird edges and weird lines and, and interactions between cards that you maybe wouldn't see if you're just saying, you know, oh, I'm playing the artifact deck and I'm playing against green and they have a bunch of artifact removals. So this sort of matchup is kind of dictated or there's a, there's an obvious advantage. Whereas in these slow, grindy games where people are sort of, yeah, like you're saying, we both could have that one Wrath in our deck, or we both could have that one Bomb Planeswalker. I was playing a creature deck with Knight Incarnate last night. I'll put Knight Incarnate in my creature deck. Why not? Well, I mean, because it kills your creatures <laughs> is the obvious answer to why true, not. True, true. But I, I felt like there were enough chances that the board stages happened to be in my opponent's favor that it was good enough to put in my deck. So a counterpoint, though, to the draft being difficult and it being sort of hard to read signals, I think, on the other hand, it also was weirdly 
kind of forgiving just because you could kind of just like take the best card in the pack. Uh, and we have had players of very different experience levels play this cube. Uh, someone was literally playing this, their literal first draft of magic, you know, cube or no, booster really? draft. Yeah. I thought it was just his first cube draft. Who's to say? Might have been somebody that played the other pod because we had two pods last night. It was amazing. 17 people show up for Cube Night. I think you're right. Regardless, they seemed like they they had an, they didn't have an experience where they were like, I'm flummoxed because I don't know what's going on. It's pretty and hard to bomb really bad in this it's cube. It's just really hard to bomb. So it's kind of a weirdly forgiving space. I mean, the one though, way you can bomb in this cube is just by not paying attention to your mana curve and ending up with too many mm-hmm. like too many four and drops. five drops mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of really good three drops in the cube. Yeah. And I, so I think it, and I also think that you know, I ended up cutting a lot of my one drops from my deck, which is the thing I don't like to do normally, but the one drops were just less impactful, and I thought that the gamers were going to come down to impactful cards more than having a one drop, and so that's what I prioritized. Even though my curve wasn't ideal, I think it was ideal for my pool, and I'm not sure I could have drafted any differently in my seat to end up with a better curve, but I think that's the one where you can actually bomb out. Like, if you have just, like, fours and fives and no removal, then it's going to be really hard to win. But other than that, it's, it, it is really hard to totally train wreck this kind of cube. That is something that I really, really enjoyed about this is that without really trying to that much, I was just sort of going for, you know, I, I did focus on a few themes. I especially focused on trying to push that range of speed as much as possible and try to promote a very aggressive deck and some more controlling decks. But even without really trying to, so many more sort of aspects of what I love about black and the color pie really, really came through to me. I felt like there was so much about the the graveyard and pulling things in and out of the graveyard that really mattered. Is grave hate just main deckable in this cube? Like Absolutely, scrabbling yeah. claws, I mean, you that's think? Something that like we dedicated grave hate? Right away, like Timoret and... Um, well, those cards are definitely the ones that are just like withering wretch. The, the withering cards that are just yeah. like free upside, wretch. like it's a fine card. And also you get grave hate. I definitely think are main deckable. But it's like Scrabbling Claws, like a card that's basically just Grave Hate main deckable, you think? I think so. I mean, worst case, it cycles. So uh, I, I, try, I try, you know, in my general cube design philosophy, not to include a lot of cards that are like super narrow, total sideboard cards. I definitely still want things to be functional uh, and make sense. But yeah, I think that that was super relevant. I mean, even in some drafts, players would comment, you know, my removal just felt ineffective, <laughs> which in a way is kind of a negative, but also just interesting to uh, the texture of the environment and the fact that you do just need to the recontextualize things. graveyard is a very that, valid zone in this yeah, cube. Yeah, if, if your removal spell is thinking, if you're thinking your removal spell is going to get rid of something forever, it's probably not. You probably just need to uh, think of it more like a tempo play. So you're basically saying that the mono black cube is exactly the same as the mono blue cube if all the cards are bounce spells. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Uh, another thing that really came through to me is the fact that life gain and life payment really came through. There were, I think, swingy in an interesting way where players would just end up paying down to really light, low life totals and then slowly eke out, climb back up and have this really interesting balance and tension. Uh, I don't know if you experienced that as much. I know life gain is something you really don't like. But again, I tried not to include, you know, batter skull or things that would just hugely swing things. But there's a lot of little incremental effects as well. Yeah, I thought it was... The like life gain matters deck, which is a pretty small set of cards, I would say, because we don't have access to white and all the Johnny's mm-hmm. primate kind of stuff. I think more of the life gain matters payoffs are in white or gold cards that are black white, but there's some in black. I think those are reasonable, and the the life gain for the most part is pretty incremental. I played against a life gain deck with my more aggressively leaning creature deck, and it was not tilting to me, even though they were gaining a fair amount of life because I was still getting the uh, the advantage. So we did have a match last night end in a. Ormondal, which is the backside of Westvale Abbey, You'd which is a to see it. I, I love nine to seven that off with the bingo flying <laughs> indestructible haste and lifelink, uh, was just getting chump blocked every single turn by a bitter blossom token, and so 
Uh, the hey. one player was gaining nine life every single turn, <laughs> and the other player was playing the life gain deck, which was also gaining life through other means. And I think they just called it quits at like 59 life to 36 life, and we're like, this is not progressing towards a completion. We're going to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's valid. It's good to know when to... Uh... When to quit. So I would say... probably a lot better. I mean, Westo Abbey is a card that I love. Just I have a strong emotional attachment to that card. I think it's so cool. And I've never designed a cube where it's even remotely playable. Partially because Ormondal, in a lot of environments, is just not, not actually that sticky. Like, you just bounce mm-hmm. it. Like, you did all this work. You sacrificed five creatures to flip your land. And then it just gets unsummoned or path to exile or whatever. In this cube, though, Ormondal is actually worth it because how much black removal is going to kill an indestructible thing? Oh, yeah, it's a great Basically point. nothing. I think it's there's one or two exile, spells. Uh, but yeah, most of it is... There's some exile and there's some minus X, minus X based on an effect, but that's you're still going to need a lot you of whatever get to seven, that effect yeah. is. Uh, that's a great point. And I think that's another sort of lesson that I've learned or sort of an, an experience that I'll carry forward is seeing how these different interactions played out and potentially looking for how to make those work in other spaces, as well as just a lot of individual cards. So to say, you know, I would never have put Mind Slicer in a cube, but this card was just so cool. And thinking about it uh, in this context makes me want to think more about how to, you know, push that forward in uh, in other contexts. I mean, just to, to sort of think about it from this perspective, if I was building a cube of 360 cards, I would put, you know, a mixture of all, all, the colors probably uh, in a normal day, but uh, I've put six times as many black cards in. This you had to cube, go pretty so deep. I'm, I've gone very deep in exploring what's possible, and that's. And you just... also, I would say, like I think most people listening, if they just heard about a mono black cube, would assume, of course, there's a reanimator deck, and maybe there's even like a storm deck, and you intentionally avoided some things that I think are very iconic to black, for better or worse. Like there yeah. is no reanimator deck here. The reanimation spells are purely value oriented, and there's no like cards that are in there just to be reanimated you're supposed to cast right i think that's the bigger thing is that there are some reanimation spells but it's a lot of either smaller reanimation or conditional and there are very few targets for it there's you know a couple six drops in the whole environment but not a lot and that was just because there's also just a lot of taste injected in this as well i just don't love those kinds of games where somebody reanimates something on turn one and then you just uh lose the game on the spot i definitely want it to be more incremental more value oriented uh, and just a little bit the kind of magic that i more enjoy but that's another reason you went even deeper maybe than you would have had to right, go otherwise because right. a lot of cards that people do play in black because they are fairly iconic to the color you were like right out i'm not doing any of that so let's go even deeper into black's back catalog definitely and there are even sort of like i would say the top like two percent of iconic black cards that just sort of felt a little bit overwhelming uh you know i'm thinking about like uh, phyrexian obliterator and even grave titan i think would just end too many games in the spot because they just line up very badly against uh i think you missed a chance to play phyrexian obliterator though when are you ever going to get another chance to play phyrexian obliterator you know what i'm gonna make that chance this next sometime soon <laughs> that's another card that's on my like uh, my my hit list of like i want to play with this card but i don't know where it's reasonable to do so and this would have been a place where even if it was like overpowered I'd be happy to lose to it a couple times. A couple times. All right, so maybe that was a mistake, is I should have put put some of those those powerful cards. I mean, well, maybe was... especially in the context of like knowing that this is probably not a cube you're going to have forever. Right. Like, yeah. why not make the experiment a little more extreme and just see what happens? And I guess the argument is that like, if Phyrexian Obliterator just so outshines everything else that you learn nothing else from the environment, then that's a problem. But I think there's enough removal running around, and you're not going to deal damage to it with removal like you would in a red deck. Like part of what makes obliterator is so devastating is that if you're playing a red deck you can't even remove it without getting your entire board blown up yeah that's true i would just like i would like to have dra- i would i would just like to have <laughs> taken sorry. it pack one pick one i'm sorry <laughs> i didn't I'm give saying. you a phyrexian obliterator <laughs> on that note though I, I think that 
something else that was really fun about this this experiment was the fact that I was sort of pulling from such a range of both familiar and unfamiliar cards. It was really fun to see both people surprised and uh, discover new things they'd never seen before. Like, oh, look at this weird morph I'm going to do weird stuff with. But then it was also really satisfying to see people get surprised by the familiar and powerful things. Just one concrete example, uh, again, Patrick drafting this really aggressive deck sort of looked at me and was like, it would be so cool to draft this one particular card, and then opens up pack two and just gives me this grin, and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm so happy that you got to have this surprise moment. What was the card? It was a Dark Confidant, which was perfect for their deck. Ah. And I just don't think you would necessarily have that experience if we didn't have the spread of both a little bit of power level and more importantly a familiarity that just created a pretty unique experience that had some fun moments yeah if you have 360 cards and they're all black you're more likely to have a dark confidant than another cube <laughs> that has I all five colors i think that's true that's how math sure. works <laughs> i just want to say that i don't think bane of the living is a weird morph creature i think it's one of the most okay powerful what about what, about, cool what about soul collector that one's weird that one's weird that one counts as weird that one has got in a little bit just because the illustration is so cool it is powerful if you get to hit with if it. If you can, I never. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of bingo bingo <laughs> card cells that have not been checked off on this cube, and maybe that's the the thing that I'm that makes me most apprehensive about taking it apart. Is you know we finally you get got to, do to all see stuff. an Ormond doll. Yeah, uh, we finally got to see a like hyper aggressive deck. We I, the zombie deck was cool. It never quite got there. Uh, there's there's still a lot of like unachieved achievements i guess is the way i would put it that is a little bit of a bummer but i think that's just kind of the cost and if you try and like 100 percent every game you're not gonna enjoy life as much <laughs> i mean a related thing obviously to all of what we're saying is just that constraints breed creativity and i think especially when we're talking about doing weird stuff and iterating on weird stuff you're going to learn a lot of things discover a lot of things that you're going to carry through in that next experience so there again i just see a lot of value in doing a lot of repetition and trying new things. The last thing I'd say is just, uh, it is really fun to build novel cubes like this just because there are a lot of cards that change based on context, and it's really fun to sort of open up a pack and read these cards in a new way. The Turbo Cube really does that. Uh, Donald K. Magic's Changeling Cube really does that. And here really it's stuff like, defeat. yeah, destroy Broken target pack one, pick black one. creature for one mana or is really, really potent. Yeah, there's actually multiple of these effects. So that was really fun both when building the cube just to figure out whether the, the cool scryfall searches you can do to find these relevant cards that you know it's a, a 12 cent card because it doesn't make sense anywhere else but in this cube it does something really novel and fun uh, i mean swamp Balk is another obvious example where it just is gonna do a lot it's gonna be relevant all the time so that's another thing i like about building these novel environments and i'll definitely continue to think about either if it's by you know literally changing the rules or changing the the card inclusions or just in more subtle ways recontextualizing cards to give you those kind of novel experiences with familiar cards I think it would be incorrect to pack one, pick one, Phyrexian Obliterator over Liliana's defeat in this environment. I would still do it. Yeah. But I think it would be incorrect to do so. Because it's still a four-drop creature. It just dies to removal. A one mana. It's basically a one mana. What's a, what's the most iconic, I guess, hero's downfall, the most iconic destroyed creature of Planeswalker, which is basically what Liliana's defeat is here. Plus, the upside, if you kill Liliana, it you know does damage to them. So it's got other upside there, too. Yeah, there's a couple of Lilianas you could have. There's quite a few Lilianas running around. I feel like a big part of why I love designing cubes is just wanting to give a home to specific cards. I mentioned my like hit list earlier. I do. I don't, it's not actually a physical list anywhere, which is weird because I make a lot of physical lists. Got but a lot of lists. You're a list guy. There's definitely a list in my head of like I want to find a place where I, this card can be played in the way that I want to play it, right? And I, that's a lot of what cube design is for me. It's like eventually there's like a critical mass of like, well, I want to play 
this kind of cloud of cards, which all seem vaguely mutually playable with each other. So is there maybe a cube that can kind of come out of this? Uh, I, I mentioned last week that I'm interested in designing a environment inspired by classic magic, pre-modern magic. And I have started dabbling with that design, and it was really satisfying to make a couple of like big decisions early on. Like, I love Astral Slide. Astral Slide is a card I would love to draft and be viable. And I think it can work in this environment because... It's going to be fundamentally lower power level because it's all pre-modern stuff, pretty much. I'm going to make some exceptions, but not power level exceptions. The exceptions are going to be like, this is a card that I think provides a good redundancy for a kind of effect that I want and could have theoretically been printed in the old border. It's not just like some creature that has modern stats that would never have been printed in the early days. But also, I also I think I landed on just putting, I think I'm going to put like 16 copies of Ash Barons in that cube. And on top of the you already, know I love to hear that. On top of the already other playable cycling cards, I think that just makes Astral Slide like a very good card that you can just draft around pretty easily, and it has a lot of cool interactions. And like ultimately, the reason I like this cube is, and I'm excited to keep working on it, is because Astral Slide is one of a number of cards where it's like here is maybe a home where this can be played in this way that I want, right? Yeah, I mean, we, I think one of the core things we talk about in this whole podcast is make the fun thing the powerful thing, because your players are going to try and do the most powerful thing, and you want them to have a good time. If it turns out that, you know, the best strategy is just to do this one thing that is way too grindy, way too much accounting, uh, or just, you know, the games end too fast, and there's not really time for a fun experience, your player's going to do that, and they're going to win and not have a good time. For the most part, at least you need to sort of design for that worst case scenario. It's weird to call it the worst case scenario because they should be trying to win. It's the right scenario. So yeah, figuring out that's a fun experience. Astral Slide is really fun to play with. Well, I think the jury's still out on that. I think the jury is out on whether or not people will actually enjoy playing with and against Astral Slide. You know, it's kind of like a Soul Herder. If Soul Herder was harder to remove and also could fog Uh you every turn, which (laughs) which is maybe maybe a little much. But the plus side is the blink targets are awful in pre-modern magic you're not gonna have a, a sun titan and an eternal witness and no what else did you used to do to us with your your rude cycling deck mostly i would just recur tilling tree folk which would get me two cycling lands back to my hand so i could cycle indefinitely tilling tree folk was the big problem mm-hmm. yeah but looking at two buttons win game cycle 15 times what do you do <laughs> think of what i could draw it could even be a card that <laughs> wins the game <laughs> So that's the black cube. It was fun. I'm ready to have a little bit more headspace, card space, just space to do new things. I think it was a good experiment. I wish there was Phyrexian Obliterator and maybe a couple other more spicy cards. And I do think there was a couple cards that were huge traps in this cube. I'm not sure if they're intentional or not, but there were a few cards in there that are symmetrical lords. Specifically, I think there's two for zombies and maybe only zombies, but there's lords that just affect all zombies in play. Maybe there's actually three even. I'm picturing them in my head. I think there's at least three. I mean, you're looking at me and I drafted all of those cards last night and I was very excited too. And uh, I was yeah. I was doing zombie tribal and I was passing them for anything like a scrabbling clause because I'm like, I'm yeah. not putting this in my deck ever. And you felt that against me. Because you had a situation where I had like three zombies in play and your only stabilizing play was a zombie lord. And you're like, do I play it? And mm-hmm. the answer was no. <laughs> you did not play no. it. Yeah, that was a little bit disappointing because I actually ended up siding out a bunch of those cards every single match. Because specifically, I think I didn't draft enough sort of support enablers. I needed a bunch of one and two mana zombies to make those more expensive lords worth it. The other thing and that's I was- where the well dries up very quickly. If you're talking about getting 360 black cards, the sure, well of yeah. decent playable one and two mana zombies, especially one mana zombies, is going to be dry real quick. 
True. Uh, and the other challenge there was the other half of my strategy was I had a bunch of expensive planeswalkers, which those were my win conditions. I was winning the game that way. So saying, okay, These are all just road bumps. put up, road put bump up, put up blockers and then land my planeswalker and protect it. That doesn't work great when they say all of your opponent's creatures have swamp walk. So I was really sort of putting that one is the biggest trap because you uh, also just play sure. it and might just die immediately on the crackback. You don't even have yeah, a chance to like yeah. block. So yeah, I mean, it was interesting and there's a lot to learn there still and explore. So I've heard defenses of traps in cubes, like defenses of cards that maybe look good but actually aren't as like a way for your players to level up, right? And yeah. just learn that, and I drafted this cube three-ish times, maybe four. Again, I can't remember the exact number. It's not a lot, but I drafted enough to be like, I'm never taking this card, even though I am in a zombie tribal deck, and I was just passing them because that was the thing I had learned. And that's that's a moment for me as a player to be like, this is an advantage I have over the table now. I mean, think about it this way. I fell into that trap, but I had a good time sideboarding very heavily, so <laughs> that was a good experience. Give your players opportunities to sideboard yeah, heavily by making lots of their cards. main deck cards surprisingly unplayable at an opportune moment. Any final thoughts as we put the mono black cube to rest? Fine, but that was, that was enough thoughts, I think. That was a lot of <laughs> thoughts, for sure. Do you have another experimental cube project in uh, on the horizon that you're thinking of of brewing? Like, does this you mentioned this open up this opens up space, you know, in your card collection and also in your mind? Is there something that is uh, knocking on the door to fill that space? I'm still sort of processing the experience of KubeCon. I'm also really looking forward to getting uh, more feedback from people that are filling out the the KubeCon survey about those cubes specifically. So. That's a lot to digest and sort of figure out what I want to do next. Um, also say that if you went to KubeCon and you drafted either the regular cube or the turbo cube and you have any feedback at all, critical, honestly, even better than than just positive, please get in touch. Uh, I'd love to hear it. Um, and if you want to be anonymous, I will offer you the opportunity. If you send it to <laughs> mail at luckypaper.co, that just goes to me. It doesn't go to Anthony. Okay. I will pass along the feedback absent any identifying information. Mm. I will. I will okay. do it anonymously. Okay. I don't think you should worry about... I think Anthony is going to be You're very welcome to the critical me. feedback. Absolutely. We both went to art school, which honestly, I think one of the best things you learn at art school is both how to give productive feedback critically and also receive critical feedback without having your entire ego crushed. I will say if your feedback on the regular cube is, I didn't like this because all the cards were bad, the way I'm going to take that is, okay, one more data point, one more person who has this feel. I don't think one they... More person, <laughs> one more person to tell to go themselves no that's not the case they <laughs> they are looking for a different experience and they're the kind of experience they're looking for is totally valid like we should all be trying to get the most out of our hobby and if that's not for you that is a relevant data point but my answer is not going to be yes you're right i should have done it differently if you like smashing the most powerful cards into each other blindly then mm -hmm. go ahead do that thing do that go do Play you. your moxen enjoy your variants turn on items filthy timmy <laughs> you probably hate being called a timmy but you're a filthy timmy timmy tammy's out I there i appreciate all the timmy tammy's Keep, I like well, I like alive. the Timmy Tammies that actually like identify as Timmy Tammies, yeah. not the people that think being a Timmy Tammy is somehow uh, being a spike because yeah. You're, if, they're spiking cube yeah. design. Let's not go down this road. Let's end on a high note. Zombies are cool. Rest in peace to the mono black cube. I will enjoy, will I it come back as an undead zombie cube someday? It's it's you know the list is on Cube Cobra. If anybody, I'm gonna maybe update the description a little bit and maybe add some lessons learned there. Obviously, we've talked a lot about lessons learned here. If somebody else wants to take this list, clone it, edit it, fix it, make it their own, they're absolutely more than welcome to do that. I my love suggestion: cut Zombie Master, add Phyrexian Obliterator. My suggestion: maybe add Phyrexian Obliterator, leave Zombie Master, but see if you can just make that work better. <laughs> All right, well, that is it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Thank you for tuning in. 
Do we have logistics stuff to do anything? What do we have to do? Uh, so a couple little logistic things about, you know, Lucky Paper. We have this podcast. We also have the website with all kinds of other projects and uh, just a little update on those. We've been continuing to update both the cube and the commander maps. We've updated those pretty recently with new data that continue to evolve and change shape. If you've added new decks on or new cubes on Cube Cobra and want to see where they fall on the map, go check them out. We also currently still have our 40k and Infinity surveys up. Uh, those Are we not going to close those before this episode comes out? Bit. Great question. I think we'll probably close those. People Just had their that. chance. Because the bro one has to go up yeah. maybe the end of this week. True, true. Yeah, we definitely need to close it before then and open that. Yep. I so. don't want three surveys right, open at the same that. time. We also got a lot of people that were asking about, uh, after our retrospective episode, if they could go back and get their previous responses to our surveys. Uh, so... I went ahead and built a little tool to make that even easier. So there's a page we'll link in the show notes where you can go type in your username or usernames if you have uh, been not totally consistent. And Looking see, at you crying nickety. <laughs> <laughs> see all of the past submissions to those Lucky Paper surveys, what you rated, and more importantly, we grab the data from Cube Cobra so you can see what cards you were testing that are still in, not in anymore, or cards that you didn't submit that you've since added from each of those sets. So it's cool to do your own little retrospective there. This page ended up being so incredible and useful, and the people that have looked at it so far have given such positive feedback. It's just, it's the most concise way, like, even when we recorded a retrospective episode, we didn't have this tool, so I had to go through and, like, manually be like, alright, which of these cards am I still playing, which ones am I not playing, check my old ratings, and this is just, it does it immediately, it was a nice little graph over time of uh, the cards you've rated highly and lowly and how many have stuck around in your cubes. It's, uh, it's a great tool, so everyone should check it out. And if you're not filling out the cube surveys, you don't get to use cool stuff like this. You're on the outs, so start filling out those cube surveys. Sorry. So in the future, when we do some more cool stuff, you'll be able to take advantage of it. And this is just another instance where we just really appreciate feedback from people. Chill MTG and Darth Pink Hippo were both asking if they could access this data. Darth Pink easier. Hippo wanted the list of 95,000 cards they have tested. Billion cards. Uh, so yeah, thanks for that feedback, because it turned out to be not a totally impossible thing to do, and we have it now. One more little thing, I just started on a new little project to just like format lists of cards. So this is kind of a weird request, but if you have weird lists of cards, you know, you get from Moxfield or TCG Player or Scryfall, wherever or you're some weirder place. getting sp spreadsheets and lists of cards that are not formatted and you want to do stuff with, send those to me. I want to see what they look like so I can try and make one device that can, that can help uh, make all these lists of cards work well together and transport things from one service to another. I think Anthony's tool is going to be very useful, and it's going to be extremely to useful to, to exactly to like <laughs> there seventeen are people that dozens are listening. of us that enjoy spreadsheets of cards. There are dozens of us. Dozens. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it'd be more useful to more people, except people will not know how to make it useful to them because it is abstracted, and it will be hard to like get them over the hump of thinking about transforming data. But I think you should also just throw this on a staging site or something let people poke around at it if you're willing yeah to. i think by the time this episode is out i'm gonna have something that's gonna be polished enough that uh or even just put it on the main site just not linked anywhere yeah, so people sure, that don't know what sure. they're looking for don't find it and get confused but i think it's gonna be a great tool and so uh like anthony loves the feedback and a lot of people have been very helpful in lots of aspects of the site and helped us work on things so thank you to everybody this is a community effort yeah so that's everything else we got going on uh we're excited for all that, I guess. <laughs> We're excited to continue to be alive continue every day. This. Talking about magic cards. That is actually it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show was produced by Anthony designing a cube two years ago, building it in paper, playing it a dozen times with his friends, and then putting it to rest just so we could make two podcast episodes about it. 
Thanks for doing it for the content, Anthony. Oh, I, I did it because I wanted to play Magic the Gathering. I know. To be I'm, clear. I'm trolling. To you. be clear. I'm sure you would reject the uh, idea of doing anything for the content as I do. Except for the content. Do the content for the content. Do the content for the content. Sibilance, sibilance, sibilance. Red, yellow, yellow, yeah. <laughs> You're definitely ready to do it. Red, leather, yellow, leather. Red, leather, yellow, leather. Red, leather, yellow, leather. All right. Um, you ready to go? Yeah. It's a big deep breath as if you were getting ready to do something you don't enjoy. <laughs> That was the deep breath you do before you, like, jump into an ice-cold lake or something. Mm-hmm. Yep. An ice-cold lake cold? Or, like, November. pull a splinter out of your hand. It's like the big... Yeah. Yeah.